Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. Today, I am so honored to have on the show my friend Jay Warner Wallace. I think most people listening to this probably already know who he is, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page about his awesomeness, so let me give you a quick background. Jay Warner Wallace is a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective, a popular national speaker, and a best-selling author. He was a devout atheist until the age of 35 when he decided to apply the same step-by-step investigative process he utilized in his work as a homicide detective to the Bible. He became convinced that Christianity was true and his life was never the same. Jim has now written several books that explain the evidence for the truth of Christianity from the perspective of a detective. And I can say on a personal note, all of them are fantastic. I cannot recommend them more highly. And I've known Jim actually for about a decade now. He was a huge part of my own story of getting started in ministry. Little known fact, I started my blog back in 2011 and a couple of years after that I reached out to him and said, hey, would you accept a guest post on your website? And in retrospect, this is kind of embarrassing because I, this isn't even something that he was really doing at the time. I just kind of threw it out there without thinking too much about it. And he graciously agreed. And I wrote an article. He posted it. Well, an editor at Harvest House Publishers was looking for something on Jim's blog not long after that one day. He came across my article and then he went and visited my website. And this editor got interested in what I was doing. Long story short, that led to me writing my first book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. And Jim ended up writing the forward for that. So we've known each other for years, and it is a joy to have him on the podcast today. So welcome to the show, Jim. Well, it's funny, you should, now that my awesomeness has been established. Uh, yes, it has, right here on the Natasha Crane podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. What a terrible way to start this. Okay, but um, but it's true that I haven't, you know, I haven't had anybody write a guest post since then. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't usually, wow. and I get requests all the time, but I could see that your work was something that was really different and special. And, and so, yeah, you're the only person I think who's ever written a guest post, not like I have this, you know, oh, this blog where, you know, it's just another blog out there that we're trying, all of us feel called. I, I feel like it's a spiritual discipline, right? Like the stuff we're doing, I don't really have a goal. Um, I'm not really trying to achieve this thing. And then when I get to this point, it's, it's just that. It's like a spiritual discipline in creating this content the same way you would be reading your scripture and your prayer life. Those are things we consider to be spiritual disciplines. And for a lot of us, if you're journaling, we're kind of journaling out loud, you know, journaling publicly uh, the things that we're thinking about. And it's just really a spiritual discipline. And I saw that yours was had a, a unique audience that needed to, and look at what's happened since. So, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm grateful to be a, a kind of an unknown part of your history there. <laughs> That's good. Well, I appreciate that. And you have, you have been a very dedicated blogger over the years. I mean, I can't think of anyone who has blogged as consistently as you have over that amount of time. I mean, when you go to your website, it's just a treasure trove of content. If anyone's listening and hasn't actually been to the website, it's coldcasechristianity.com. And you can search on just about any topic there. I think it, it's almost like a library. Sometimes when I'm looking for something, I'm like, I bet Jim has written about this, and I'll go well, to your I website wish, and you know, just I so search. wish that was the case, Natasha. I wish, you know, you're right, though. It's, it's, just, it's like because it's a spiritual discipline. Like I, we just consistently do, you know, post something because we're hoping to say something about Jesus. Um, uh, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like it's not like, like gotquestions.org. I mean, there's, there's sites that are out there, as you and I both know, where pretty much every qu- question you could think of has been answered. But we do want to at least contribute in this unique way. Like you, you and I have both understand that we have a lane that we kind of run in that is what God has given us as our gift set. And it's not appropriate. My lane is not appropriate for every potential topic. But where, where an evidential um, um, approach might be helpful, then that's what I try to write about. So. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyone who has been keeping up with podcasts in the world of apologetics in this lane, as you say, lately has probably noticed that you've been doing a lot of interviews. And that's because you just released an updated and revised 10-year anniversary edition of your first book, Cold Case Christianity. I, I have to say there's probably not a single book that I have recommended to people more often over the last several years on my podcast, through my blog, in my speaking. I mean, everywhere, every Unshaken conference, we've been recommending your book from the stage because it always comes up. It is so valuable. So for those who haven't read it, if someone's listening and they're like, I don't know about this book, let them know what it is. And then, especially for the people who do know what it does, explain what's new in this edition. Why do people need to get the new book? And you do, by the way, but I want you to hear it from Joan. Well, I mean, look, it, 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 the worst part about writing books, and you know this, because for me, and for maybe you too, writing books is part of that spiritual discipline too. Right? Like I, I have an idea that I want to talk about and something I've investigated that really I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. <laughs> like I discovered something. When I discovered the Gospels were reliable, that was such an awesome thing to discover that I wanted to talk about it. And when I first pitched the book, uh, Sean McDowell, our friend Sean, who's also worked with you on, on endorsing a book, that that I really, he said you should write a book about your journey through the evidence and I just I, I'm glad I, I he actually encouraged me to do it and so that book ten years ago just chronicles how I looked at the Gospels for the first time because I didn't have one of these ex, uh, like Jesus experiences I often we'll talk to people on why are you a Christian oh well this happened to me and and then I prayed about it and I had this experience that confirmed for them that Christianity was true. And I thought, well, something wrong with me? Like I didn't. That's not why I think Christianity is. That's not how I became a Christian. I I became it by examining the, the Gospels. And so when people say, well, yeah, what's your story though? What's your testimony? Well, that's it. <laughs> it's in Cold Case Christianity. It's also in God's crime scene and person of interest. You know, these are the journeys that I had to take in order to determine this was true. And I thought. Well, doesn't everyone approach it this way? But of course, that's not necessarily the case because everyone's got a different set of skills. And so Cold Case just kind of chronicles the approach you might take to determine if a supplemental report that is written by somebody in the past that contains an eyewitness account, how do you know if that's trustworthy? How do you know that? And that's what a lot of us do for a living. I wasn't assigned to cold cases when I started this investigation because we didn't have a cold case unit. All of us were investigating cold cases as a collateral duty and we did that sometimes for upwards of a decade before anybody went to jail because they're just on the side. But there's a process and that process is what you'll read on the pages of cold case and when I wrote that book 10 years ago, it was my first book and you probably know this too, you know that first publisher is not sure you're going to sell a single copy. <laughs> so they're they're not going to like, oh, can you do a bunch of, I mean, I wanted to illustrate this thing the way it's illustrated now. But they were like, well, I'm not going to add a bunch of pages to this. If I mean, they don't even sure what kind of illustrations these might be, I'm sure. But um, I, I have a background in the arts, and so I wanted to illustrate it robustly. I, did, I wrote a book called Person of Interest. And in that book, the goal, and it's really the goal, and I learned some from doing kids' books, I want every page that you open to have some graphic element. That's just who I am as a person. I, I like graphic elements that help me kind of organize. If it's just an element that helps me see if this is a subset of the larger argument. Um, if you look at my search warrants going back years ago, uh, Ramey warrants for arrests, every warrant I've ever written, I included a high level of graphic elements in those so that the judge could kind of quickly, okay, I get it, I get it. And, and this is what I was trying to do in my books. And so now this year, 
uh, with the 10th anniversary, they have allowed me to go back and put 300 new graphic elements and illustrations in the book so that it's much more like person of interest in the sense that it's every page there's some kind of graphic element. Yeah, that's a, it's amazing that you have that artistic ability to go with it because most of us as authors could not draw anything if we wanted to. So <laughs> it's incredible that you can illustrate a book in this way. And it's really, I mean, it's really an amazing book when you look at it with all the updated illustrations and everything that, that has gone into that. And also the content has been updated, right? So is there yep. anything in particular that when you went into this update, you thought, I cannot wait to clarify this particular point? Oh my gosh. Because so, somebody has come up with this so many times and I just want to say it this different way. Is there something that jumps out at you that you really want to change? Well, I mean, is there a sense in which, yeah, there's places in the book where it, the, the changes are just grammatical or I'm like, you know what, this is, I never liked this sentence anyway, so I've, I've changed it to make it more, a little more easier to read. Uh, so there's a bunch of that. But, but more importantly, there are entire sections where if you do your stage presentations long enough, you realize this is a much clearer way to make the case for this. So like the section, for example, I have this illustration I use on the stage of a series of cell phone text messages and how we can get back to the original content of the message. Uh, so so I've been doing that for years, but that was never in the original book. It was just something I started doing on the stage afterwards. And when I read the, um, uh, the original version of the book, we originally hired an actor to read the audio version. And then about seven or eight years after the book had been out, our publisher retained the rights for the audio version and called me and said, hey, would you please read the book now? Now that, that the book's done so well, let's let's have you read it. So I went in the studio to read the book. And as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, man, there's like a thousand things I'd like to change. And that was part of the impetus to, to redo it as I realized reading the book that there's lots of things. And it's not so much like the, that, that the case is the same as the case was for 2,000 years. Now, is there, is there more from an archaeological perspective? Yes. Could I organize that, make the case more powerfully? Yes, we did that. There's an entire section. But I would say well, there wasn't a single page where something wasn't changed. I mean, it just isn't. I, I have a version of this in which the changes are all in red. And I think I put a video online where I just kind of scan through that so they can people can see this is a different this is you know all the stuff you love about it hopefully is still there, but all the stuff that could be clearer and more persuasive, and because I think honestly this is a book that I want high schoolers to read. This is a, and it's a it's a it's a large book. I mean, there's a lot of words in this book, but because I've tried to make it visual, I hope that it's accessible. Certainly, I know your kids. I know them personally. I know that your kids could read this. Um, but I want it so that, that, that any high school, because people will say, well, what, do you have a version of this for kids? Well, yes, that's for 8 to 12-year-olds. That's Cold Case Christianity for kids. Well, do you have a version for high schoolers? Well, the book is the, is the version for high schoolers. Yes. That's why I always thought that was the one that would, would be accessible. So now I think it's even more accessible, and that was why I really wanted to make this a more visual book. Well, the bottom line is that even if you have read Cold Case Christianity, you need to get this updated version because it is a huge update. It has so much to offer. And even if you've read the book before, I mean, read it again. There's so much to, to gain from it, so much richness in there and so many details. And maybe you read it, you know, five years ago or something. You go back. I know it's true for me. And you see something you're like, oh, that's a really good point. I, I totally forgot about that. And the reason that I was revisiting the book is because I just finished teaching uh, several months over the video curriculum of Cold Case Christianity. Christianity to a group of teenagers, and that included uh, 7th grade up until 10th grade. I think I'm getting that right. And so we went through it, and we did the video series, and absolutely kids of that age can, can read the book, and it was fantastic. It's one of the most important things that I think that you can do with teenagers. 
Um, because I think a lot of times when people think of apologetics, they actually go straight to, okay, the evidence for the existence of God. And that's important too. But 90% of people in America today already believe in God or some kind of higher power. What they're not believing in is the Bible. And so to go straight to that with kids, I think is, uh, is really important. So yes, get the book. It's amazing. That said, you and I agreed before we did this interview that because you're doing so many interviews right now and talking about the book, we wanted to do something a little bit different for the rest of our time. Make sure everybody knows about it, but at the same yes, time, please get do something. Way. Yeah, I hate marketing <laughs> books. I just hate it. It feels so so ugly, right? But it's, a, it's no, important. no, it's not ugly. People but, need to know about yeah, it. It is anyway. important, but we wanted to focus on something a little bit different so yes. that it doesn't sound like, like everything else. So what we decided on doing was a show on how to think evidentially about biblical doubts in particular. And Good. let me tell everyone why this this topic came to mind for me. I've been reading through the minor prophets lately and I have encountered several things where I personally go, okay, this is really strange. I mean, can I just say that out loud? This is a strange thing. You know, it, it's something where God says something and I think, you know what, if I just pulled that out of the Bible and said, you know, did God say this or not say this? I'd be like, no, 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 God would never say that. This just yeah, sounds so strange. But I also realize because I think in this way, I've learned to think in this way, that the truth of Christianity does not hinge on whether or not I think certain things sound weird. It hinges on the resurrection. And because I've learned to think in terms of the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels, in large part, thanks to your work, um, and they tell us about the resurrection, I don't get thrown off by these seemingly strange things in the book of Hosea, for example. So what I want to do is throw a variety of types of doubts at Jim and have him respond from a detective's perspective, from someone who thinks about these things evidentially, to show you as a listener how this kind of knowledge that can be gained from a book like Cold Case Christianity can fundamentally change how we process doubt in general. So let's start with what I know is a stumbling point for many, the fact that the Bible recounts a lot of miraculous events. Obviously, atheists are going to immediately have a problem with any kind of miracle accounts, but even as believers, we still sometimes go, wait, really? A guy was really swallowed by a whale and was then vomited up. And, and Jim, I know you can appreciate that comment. How can we think evidentially about the possibility of miracles? Well, that's what it comes down to. Right? So what do we presuppose is true about the world around us? Because if we presuppose something is true and we have good reason to presuppose it, then it does it is going to either include or eliminate certain ideas. And as a philosophical naturalist, somebody who's like, yeah, once I get to the miracle part, I'm out. I might even agree that there's something true about the Gospels, but not these parts because these parts include miracles. But it, this is the entire argument of Christianity to begin with. Do we live in a world... That is, as we see, is there something about the world we can't explain? And I think most of us would agree there is something about the world which is immaterial. In other words, that can't be explained by just space-time matter, physics, and chemistry. And I think a lot of atheists are starting to wonder if there's something outside of this realm. And you see this a lot uh, with, with some of the people who are just honest in their statements. Look, for example, do we have, is there an immaterial reality about us? Is there an immaterial, do we have a mind, an immaterial mind, or do we just have a physical brain? And everything that appears to be mental, uh, and these are substantively different than the categories of your brain. You know, the reaction in your brain can be measured in a certain way that your thoughts cannot be. They can be weighed, that your thoughts cannot be. Do you have a mind? Now, I think a consistent atheist who believes in a physicalist universe could say, yes, you have a body and you have a brain, but you don't have a mind or a soul. 
Yet there are aspects that we could argue that are just, you know, for example, bodies are, things that are physical are entirely part dependent, yet you as a human are not part dependent. There are aspects of who we are that are soulish in nature. And how do we explain that? We seem to have thoughts and our thoughts can affect, uh, can actually affect our brain chemistry. Not just our brain chemistry affects our thoughts. It goes in both directions. Yet it, I'd have to deny that I have a mind in order to, to believe that, that the physicalist universe is all that exists, that everything in the universe is a product of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So I think that even as an atheist, I'd have to admit there's something, even if I look at cosmology and said, hey, and I don't think that people have been arguing that the new telescope is somehow going to change the way we think about the origin of the universe. Not yet. Not really. So far, uh, it's just confirming what we know about a universe that had a beginning. And there's the problem. Is there's something outside of space, time, and matter that began all space, time, and matter? Well, now we've already taken a step into something outside of space, time, and, uh, and matter, and chemistry, and, and physics. And, and so for me, I had to be honest. Do, do I think there's any reason to believe there's something other than the material universe in which we live? And And I think, like you said, almost everyone... The percentage of people who believe there's something that's bigger than this is pretty broad. Well, then, because that, that means you're stepping outside of the natural realm for something you think is either a higher power, a divine being. You may not think it's the God of the Bible. Fine. But you think there's something outside of space, time, and matter. Well, that should at least open up our mind a little bit to the possibility that this thing that, that creates everything from nothing, Genesis 1, could do other things that are far less in terms of their <laughs> complexity, right? I mean, if you can create everything from nothing, there's a good chance that every miracle on the New Testament is a small potato miracle compared to everything from nothing. So the real question is, do I have, do, is, is that, was my, I had, the first challenge I had, and when I pitched Cold Case Christianity to the publisher, I pitched three books at the same time. I pitched Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and Forensic Faith, and I didn't really know which one they were going to pick to go first because for me... Those were kind of my journey, but they were in three different categories, and they all happened simultaneously for me. I mean, I was looking at, I'd be reading on the scripture, and I'm ah, walking on water, or born of a virgin, I think this is ridiculous. But then ask yourself, if, if I'm excluding the, the, the notion there could be a God before I'm even examining the case at all. I'm walking in as if I know the answer to the investigation before I start. And that's always a dangerous presupposition. So the first rule of evidence, the first rule of investigations, I said in the book, is don't be a know-it-all. You cannot think you know who the suspect is before you start sifting through the crime scene. Because you will, trust me, arrive at your pre preconceived idea. Because you could find ways of interpreting or inferring from the evidence any way. You know, this is the thing about circumstantial evidence or indirect evidence. When I've got a bunch of pieces of evidence in a crime scene, those are all called indirect pieces of evidence. And the only problem with indirect evidence is it requires you then to make an inference, different than a witness coming and telling you something. That requires you to determine if that person is reliable. But if you don't have a witness and you're gathering pieces of evidence in the crime scene, you have to make an inference. And the problem with inferences is that you can always try to twist that and make a different kind of inference. There's always going to be a number of possible inferences. So for me, what turned the corner on the supernatural, what opened the door, was that the evidence for the resurrection is solid unless I've decided up front that there could be no such thing. So I have to let down my presupposition for a second. If these kind of measure well and, and they're reliable, then why would I not trust? Oh, because it includes something I don't believe exists.
but isn't the whole study about whether this thing exists? You can't come in with your conclusion. So when I started to look at the evidence for the universe, I think there are eight attributes of the universe that cannot be explained by space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. There's a better explanation. It's a mind, a divine mind that transcends all space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry is the best explanation for the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the appearance of design and biology, consciousness, free agency, moral structures that transcend us, and even a standard of righteousness by which you would call something evil. Those things require something other than space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So I've got to step outside of naturalism just to begin to think clearly about the universe. And that's what changed my view. And that's why when someone says, well, how could a donkey talk? Well, how can someone walk on water? These are all things that are outside of our expectations if all that it governs the universe is space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. But if you've already can realize you've got to step outside of that, then all of these things that sound crazy begin to sound reasonable. So I guess what you're saying is it all comes down to the evidence for the existence of God, which if anyone's well, listening and they hear. Yeah, it does. And you know, remember, remember when Andy Stanley got in trouble for saying, hey, you know, it's, it's about the resurrection. You know, like he was, I think, I don't agree with the way he said it, but I think what you and I would agree is that if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And if we've got good reason to believe the resurrection is true, it changes everything. Not just everything about Jesus and being resurrected, but everything about the way we think about our lives in this universe. Because there's a man who stepped across the divide of death and can tell us the truth about what's on the other side. And that changes things. Like we always say, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, I have a tendency to give him a different category. You, if someone comes back from the grave, right. you, you probably are going to pay attention to what he's saying. And that's what I think we have to do with Jesus. So for people who are listening and they hear all the things that you rattled off about the, that were best explained by an intelligent mind, and they're going, wait, I need to write that down. You don't have to write it down because that's exactly what Jim talks about in God's Crime Scene. God's Crime Scene is the book that looks at the evidence for God's existence. And so the reason that that becomes so important in this conversation about the possibility of miracles is that it comes down to a simple piece of logic. And we talked about this in that group that I was saying I was teaching the teenagers when we talked about don't be a know-it-all, that first chapter in your book and presuppositions, it comes down to this piece of logic, that if God exists, miracles are possible. If God does not exist, miracles are not possible. This is just a definition kind of thing, right? A miracle by definition is an extraordinary event with a supernatural cause. So if nothing exists beyond nature, there's nothing supernatural, there can be no miracles. And so I think this is a really helpful way if you have kids, I think, to explain it to them, because then you always have something you can agree with a skeptic on. You can say, hey, I agree with you that if God doesn't exist, miracles are not possible. All this would be crazy. This resurrection talk, this donkey talk, all of this, this would be insane, right? Because it can't happen. But if God exists, then that brings in the possibility, at least, of miracles. So uh, God's uh, Crime Scene is the book that gives that evidence, if anyone's interested in that. And I think you're right. Cause it's a, and, a, and part of this, too, is that is that we have a tendency to use this idea of supernatural. I think a lot of us, as a, a lot of thinking secular atheists or agnostics, are, are starting to recognize whether there might, there might be something extra natural. <laughs> in other words, something that's outside of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. 
and you'll see people who talk about this in their written materials as as atheists that they're like we we might need to start to think about whether or not there's another dimension to this but when we talk about that's why sometimes extra natural sounds much more appealing to the non-believer than supernatural because um to me it's very very you're cutting you know the, the paper very thin here but but a lot of it is you know is extra natural just another set of forces that are somehow outside they're impersonal that's what it comes down to is is the cause of the universe per Personal or impersonal. If it's outside of space, time, and matter, I think most people are still willing to say, well, it could be an impersonal force because that kind of gets rid of deity. But there are good reasons to believe this force is personal because, number one, there's information in genetic code that I don't think you're going to get from impersonal force. If, if you think you can, that burden's not on me. That burden's on you. And I'm willing to wait as long as you want to investigate that till you can somehow tell me how space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry can get you code. Uh, that's something that is you're going to have a hard time with. I always say it this way. If you walk into a death scene and you see blood spatter on the wall, you don't know if it's a murder yet because that could be caused by the way he, they fell because all it is is the chemistry of blood, the physics of the of the spatter. You can explain blood spatter with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. It could be an accident. But if I get to the same room and I see on that wall next to the blood spatter he deserved it, you know, then now I'm looking for a suspect. Why? Because you cannot get the code, the letters, the words, because codes require a, a somebody who can decode. It requires a common a commonality, and so that that problem is too hard to overcome. You're not going to get that with space. Nobody would suggest when you see the code that that was caused by space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry in the death scene. So why would you think that when you see it in DNA? I think we really have to start thinking about is the extra natural cause of the universe personal? If it is, it changes everything and it opens up the door for what we're seeing in the New Testament. So let's say that we've opened up the door for the possibility of miracles. We say, okay, I'll, I'll give it that there's something out there. Maybe it's even something personal. Now we can have the possibility of miracles. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of believers would say, yes, I do believe miracles are possible. And they look at scripture and they say, yes, Jesus healed people. That's a wonderful thing. We all get excited about that, right? We're happy that Jesus healed people. But then there are these other types of miracles that you see in the Bible. Like we keep talking about the donkey because it seems so counter to our experience. It, it seems so counter to anything that we would imagine, like why the talking donkey or, you know, uh, Jonah getting swallowed by a well. It seems so out there, maybe, compared to Jesus healing, what we would expect to happen. So how does thinking evidentially help us evaluate maybe some of the stranger miracles that we encounter in Scripture? For for believers especially who say, I believe in miracles. Yeah, I believe that there's this God. I believe Jesus is healing people. But gosh, there is some strange stuff in the Bible. How does thinking evidentially help us to process that aspect of miracle claims? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to start with a, your presupposition. So first of all, if, we, if we've opened the door, if we've got good reason to believe that, forget about the resurrection for a second. If we've got good reason to believe that God exists, now we've opened the door to, then the question is, well, why would God do it that way? The question isn't, well, anymore, well, this could never happen because, no, we've already, if we've already kind of crossed right. the bridge that God exists, then the only question left is, well, then, well, but why this? Now, that's something that's very, very interesting. Let's just be specific. Join on the whale. Why that crazy fish story? Now, now again, I think that it, we, first, first concept is that when my kids try to, when my kids were young, uh, say, say four to seven, and, and I'm to teach them something, and then if I ask them to repeat it back to me, oh, trust me, it's, it's going to come back a little bit differently because I have to make sure I, I contextualize all of my statements to them to the mind of a seven-year-old. 
even if your kids are doing really great and they're like, like a 10 year old capacity okay you're speaking differently to 10 year olds than you are to your to your spouse probably well a lot of that's because there's a certain level of capacity you know your 10 year old has and this is true for any time that god communicates to us you have an infinite mind communicating to finite beings don't think for a second that some things aren't going to sound strange if your god doesn't sound incomprehensible at times he's probably not god because it turns out that god would be the one being that would say things at times that don't make any sense now what about the jonah and the fish thing interestingly what he's doing with jonah is not just an object lesson for us going forward but it will be cited by jesus as a shadow of the future event of the resurrection and, and and part of this has more to do with the shadowing than it might, because he could have changed Jonah's mind any number of ways. <laughs> but what he did was quite effective. It worked for Jonah, and it foreshadows the coming of Jesus. And it gives us images, which is so common. Now, why would God use images? Why would Jesus use parables? He's speaking from an infinite mind to finite beings. And he's speaking in the, I would suggest, if that was going to happen in the 21st century, it probably wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in the context of a seagoing craft. It wouldn't be a fish story. Maybe it would be some other kind of story that's relevant to us in the 21st century. But if you wanted to communicate and foreshadow the future event of Jesus to a person who's on a ship uh, or lives and is going to be taking this cruise, this cruise, this fish cruise, um, you know, you're, this is a good way to do it. So I think part of it is we have to be open to that God is always speaking in the context of the culture in which he's speaking. He's speaking from an infinite mind to finite beings, and he's almost always foreshadowing something that's coming. God, like, like is raising the nation of Israel from the, a child to adulthood, and as he's raising the nation of Israel, he speaks to the nation in the context of where they are in their development as a child, as a nation. And so you see him in the very beginning being very, very harsh. The rules are here. The things you, you do with your kids early on in their life, that's what God does with the nation of Israel. And he uses these object lessons as the nation grows. And this is a story that is not just for Christians. It's also for the nation of Israel. And he has taught them the same way he teaches us. I think in the end, I'm not concerned about the miraculous nature of the fish story. All that's left is, why would he do it that way? And I think there are sufficient reasons why he would do it, especially considering who he's talking to and what he's trying to capture as a shadow of the future. That, that's really helpful. And I think one of the things that helped me early on when I started learning about evidence and apologetics, I was a little bit overly ambitious in wanting evidence for everything because I thought, you know, oh, well, there's evidence for the truth of Christianity. Therefore, I can, you know, well, what's the evidence for the talking donkey specifically? But unless I'm missing something, there's not a piece of evidence necessarily for every single miracle claim in the Bible. But what was so helpful to me in framing this problem is learning that if you can look at the reliability of the Gospels and you can investigate that, that, hey, this is based on eyewitness accounts, and you trust what Jesus says, and Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he treats it as authoritative, then that is sort of a whole package that comes together. Jesus is looking to the Old Testament repeatedly saying, hey, this is, <laughs> you know, it is written, this has been said, and so we kind of take it as a package together, I think, that, okay, I don't have a specific piece of evidence for a talking donkey, but Jesus validated the authority of the Old Testament, right. and I can get there because I have investigated the claims of the gospels which is what you show how to do well and we book. and we should be clear about that you cannot do what we did in on cold case christianity for the old testament because we actually we have enough manuscript evidence for the gospels to be able to do it the way we did it for the new testament and you're right you could not take that same process uh, for the old testament 
none of the stuff I talk about in cold case Christianity, only a few actually items like archaeology, some corroborative evidence you could look, could look at for sure. But the kind of manuscript chain of custody, those kinds of things, the early dating process we use, you just can't apply it because the documents are so ancient. And this is true for a lot of ancient worldviews. You could not take the same approach we took with the New Testament. So when you take that approach of evidence where you can, this is true in cold cases also. You'll have some evidence and then you have to make a proper proper inference about this thing that you can't examine evidentially from the evidence you do have. That's not unusual. So here you have an authoritative figure who if he rose from the grave can give you some confidence that the story of Jonah is true because it appears that Jesus thought it was. Now does Jesus mention the talking donkey? No. So then the question becomes, well do I only then endorse the things that Jesus repeated? Like did he know something that was false and that was true and he only exclude? No. You can't do that. What you have to do, now this is what I would say, in the end, as a new investigator of Christianity, did I care about anything in the Old Testament? No, no, not as a new investigator. I didn't. Now, you have to understand the overarching story of salvation. It starts with the fall. <laughs> because if there's no fall, there's no restoration through Jesus. If there's no Adam, what's the point of Jesus? So you do have to have that all in place. But for me, just trying to figure out, did the resurrection occur? And, and what I think, the Old Testament is resurrection dependent. In that sense, because why do you then trust the Old Testament? Because you know you have a risen man, the God of the universe, who told you that that's authoritative. So I think in the end, it is, you, you, for us as Christians, we, that's the, the evidential uh, key. Like the thing that unlocks the case is the resurrection of Jesus. And then it opens the door to all the other proper inferences. Yeah, and I, that's something I really emphasize with my own kids is calling it the truth test for Christianity, right? First right. Corinthians fifteen fourteen. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith right. is in vain, that's and right. our teaching is useless. So it doesn't matter. Christianity all comes down to the resurrection. I, now, this, I probably see, hammer. Yeah, you can see also, Natasha, can't you? How how someone like an Andy Stanley can to kind of make that point. And, and it can get lost on the hearers. Now, I don't know where, I, I haven't done enough, you know, I, I suspect that there's other issues, but, but, but I would say this. I also think that, that it is going to, my own personal investigation started. Now, do I believe that everything that's in the Old Testament is true? Yes. But that isn't the way I came in because I was provoked by a pastor about Jesus. So I started by investigating Jesus. But it turns out that resurrection is the key that opens the door to everything else. And so that's why, you know, that's how the, that's the approach that I took. Just, that's just my own investigation. Now, everyone's got a different, different way in. But you and I were talking about how, yeah, it seems like a lot of, of Old Testament claims could be rather curious if we didn't know up front that, right. that Jesus rose from the grave. Right. And I, I think it's especially important for kids today to understand that and just think through, well, what does make Christianity true or false? Because why do we see people walking away for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with the resurrection? <laughs> people aren't walking away because they're saying, I really investigated the case for the resurrection and it came up lacking, so I've got to go. You know, you hear they've been hurt by the church. They don't like, you know, the morality that is being preached. They don't like what the Bible teaches. There are lots of reasons people leave, but it's rarely because, oh, there wasn't enough evidence for the resurrection. So I think that this is really important for parents, especially to hammer home with their kids or in a church environment for kids to just understand this is the truth test. This is what makes it true That's right. or false. Yep. Uh, one of the things that I've always wondered about, and this is kind of more of a curiosity for me, but you know, why would God leave some things unclear enough that Christians can come to such vastly different con confusions? 
conclusions rather. In some cases, that's led to all kinds of denominations forming. In other cases, it's led to some really strange study notes. If you look in study Bibles, because no one's really sure what it means, is there anything that you could share from a detective's perspective that would help someone come to terms with maybe not having 100% clarity in the texts that have been left to us? And I asked that question thinking of one skeptic in particular I've talked with in the last year or so who said that it was a major barrier to belief for him. And, and it did seem genuine when he said this. He said, you know, if God's not the author of confusion, he sure did a bad job with the Bible. So how do you respond to that from a detective's perspective? Well, from as a, a parent, lacking complete clarity. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so, so the question is who, who decides that we're lacking complete clarity? I mean, I get it. I, I get that, that, that people make that claim. But there are times as a parent that you'll say things to your kids. And some of those things are essentials, and some of those things are negotiables. They're not negotiable, but they're just not essential. And so you may or may not be very clear on some of those because they're, they're, they're much more gray. What I think we have a tendency to do is look at the essential teaching that's in Scripture, and we, we throw in all the non-essentials as well. Uh, here's how I do it evidentially. If I'm in a crime scene and I have got uh, 12 pieces of evidence, 10 point clearly, and it can only be interpreted really, if this particular suspect is, is, is guilty of the crime. So these 10 clearly are best described, best explained by my suspect. But there are two that are like, Ugh, yeah, I mean, my suspect could account for them, but there also could be somebody else, you know, suspect two, suspect B, could also have contributed to those two pieces. The question then becomes, how do I, how do I um, infer those two pieces of evidence that are kind of like fence setters? Well, lucky for me, I've got 10 that can only be inferred in this direction. So now I know how to consider the other two. Because the other two are could be considered either way. I'm kind of like a coin flip, 50-50. But I, you know what? I, I'm gonna, I, am I going like to go with the other suspect then? No, I've got 10 that can only be explained by suspect A. Now I, that just informs my process on how I then am going to consider those two fence-setting pieces of evidence. And this is what we see in Scripture a lot, is that we will, do, by the way, uh, my team could divide over this. I could have one member of my team say, well, you know, piece 11, I like where it points. And the other person can say, oh, you know, piece 12, maybe it points to a third. I like that suspect. Now we're divided over the suspect because I've got two members of my team that are failing to see what the 10 other pieces infer. They're just decided they're going to go with that one piece and where it could go. And the same thing I think is happening for, we, we are really divided more, not over essentials, but over non-essentials. And, and, and by the way, everyone, everyone who is dividing over a non-essential thinks that their non-essential is an essential. <laughs> that is really more to do with the fallen nature of humans than it is with the evidence set. You know, you would say, look, look if, I, if, if, if I left 10 pieces of evidence in the crime scene that point to me as the suspect, you would say I'm a pretty rotten suspect. I'm pretty lazy. I'm pretty stupid at leaving those 10 pieces. If you said that God gave you 10 good reasons to believe something is true, you would say, well, how much more clear can he be? Oh, yeah, but there are two that could be on the fence. Well, yeah, but God knows if you uh, like are thinking about it, how you're going to infer those two. He's giving you 10 clear scriptures over here. Now you know how to infer those two that seem like you could make a different doctrine out of them. It's our fallen nature. that Now the question then becomes, well then why would God allow us a fallen nature? Why would God allow us the freedom to, to improperly infer something from Scripture? Because I don't think it's a matter of us dividing over, uh, I think God's been very clear on the things that are essential. And where, where things aren't essential, God has not been as clear because they're not essential. 
So, so I would say that why would God allow us then a nature that would cause us to divide? Because he loves. God is love. God is love. Not God can love or God creates. No, God is love. Why? Because unlike Allah, who doesn't know love until he creates something to love, God is triune by nature and has been in that loving relationship of the lover, the beloved, and the spirit of love between them for all eternity. God is love. And he's going to create a world in which love is possible. And that's a dangerous world because it, he has to create the dangerous prerequisite, which is free agency. And if you're uh, without free agency, you cannot create a world with love. But that means you have to create a world in which hate is possible. And, and, and some people will choose hate. Now, you can give them the truth in Scripture. So you, basically the 10 rules not to mistreat or misuse your free agency. But some people don't read the rules about free agency and they misuse it anyway. And that's not on God. If you want a world in which the best reason, choice, love, creativity, all of these require free agency. And that means, though, you're going to have to put up with hatred, uh, selfish interpretations of Scripture that we're going to divide over. You have to put up with that. Why? Because without that, you're just creating robots who never truly create. They, they, they can't have create. They can't make choices to be creative. Can't make choices to love or hate. Can't make choices to to reason between two inferences. They're just robots. And if they're robots, they're not really. Would, the human condition is not being. We would never want to live in a world like that. But if you're going to live in the world that God is deems as beautiful, where love can emerge, you're also going to live in a world in which we're going to dislike each other. We're going to divide over things we shouldn't divide over. And that's the world we're living in. And so in the end, I don't see those divisions as meaning God hasn't been clear. I see those divisions meaning that God has allowed us to have the, the, the nature that, that provides the foundation for love and reason and all the things that even atheists love, that atheists revere. Well, you couldn't have those things. If we're in a deterministic universe that is caused by material effects and physics, you don't really even have any free choice. I mean, you have to be honest about that. It, 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 if we're in a deterministic universe without only one kind of universe could actually allow you free agency. And that is one in which God somehow is the creator of it, but has the ability to say, I'm not going to, to, to control this. Physics can't say I'm not going to control this. If we're in a universe governed by physics, there is no free agency. But there are theological constructs under which you could have free agency if there's a divine being. So we all want to live in the... We, we seem to experience free agency. If, there's, if there is no free agency, if we really are in an atheistic universe, the evidence better be really good for it because I have a direct experience of my own free agency. So I think in the end, I'm, I'm more inclined to see that those differences... By the way, it's always a long answer to short questions, right? But but this is a reality of it. You have to think clearly about what is yes. it that, that is causing the division. And it's not necessarily a lack of clarity. It is probably more likely uh, a lack of, of you know a desire on our part, our rebellious fallen nature. We divide over everything. By the way, you could be – I don't care if there was – Everyone had the same 10 vert. We still find a way to divide, even if there were just 10 pieces of evidence that point that, to the that's same exactly guy. What I, 
that's exactly what I was going to say because it's always been very tempting uh, to me to think, you know, why didn't God, you know, why do this over so many years, hundreds and hundreds of years, putting together the Bible by human authors inspired by God? Like, if I were God, I would make a frequently asked questions, like, you know, very type A, lay it out, like, here's what you need to know, here's how reality works, here's what's required, here's who I am, here's who you are. Like, that would be awesome. I would love the clarity of that. But I was just thinking as you were describing this, I mean, you're so right. We would still come to different conclusions about it because we have different motivations, different biases, different experiences. I mean, all of those things come together to make us interpret things differently, even if it was, you know, that clear, quote unquote, that clear. So it's inevitable that we're going to divide over something for sure. Well, And you know, Natasha, when we select the jury, we put 12 people in the box. We're going to exclude way more than 12 people to get those 12. We're going to exclude sometimes as many as 40. You have 26 on each side you can exclude. So you could theoretically exclude 52 people to get the 12. Well, who are you excluding? You're excluding people who you know will be divisive on the jury in one direction or the other. We, uh, uh, the jury selection process reveals what we know to be true about humans, that we are fallen and we will argue about what's obvious. We will still argue about it because most of what governs our decision making is not rational. It's emotional or volitional. It just is. And we know this about jurors. So we're trying to like do a Vordire process to see, hey, do you possess these volitional or emotional obstacles that will not allow you to see the rational, evidential side of it clearly? And it's not like we go through the first 12 and go, oh, these are all great. No. No, we toss a <laughs> bunch because we realize that the, if you take any group of humans, division is far easier to find than unity. This is why when God says to us, if you want to be godly, Jesus says, be unified, because that is going to demonstrate that you are from me and that what I said was true. Why would unity do this? Because he knows it's so antithetical to the human project that as evolved creatures, that's all we are, then just be comfortable with the fact we constantly hate each other. But if we're supposed to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, the evidence of that will be the opposite of our nature, which will be unity. And what you see in the church is people who will take on the church, the, the Christian banner, but may not even be Christ followers. And this is why when Jesus says in Matthew 7, right, hey, you say you're going to do these miracles in my name, that means you're saying you're a Christian, yet you won't even be somebody I know because that door is still very narrow, even for those of us who call ourselves Christians. I think the one thing we would say, and Jesus said it, if you're going to be my Christ followers, you need to be unified, and we're not. And that's just because we're part of that larger group, which is on the broader road to destruction and not on. And so I get it. And, and but I think that's part of it is that it's not about God's clarity. It's about our nature. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think that's a very helpful answer. Um, you've done extensive work, as we've been talking about, uh, to show that the Gospels are based on reliable eyewitness accounts. But what do you say to somebody who might believe that those eyewitnesses got some stuff right? They're going to go with that, but not other stuff. So, for example, plenty of progressive Christians are happy to take parts of the Gospels as true, and then they throw out the parts that they don't like, the parts that they think Jesus couldn't possibly have said because it goes against, you know, our our better modern knowledge, for example, supposedly. Uh, Or maybe people have heard of the Jesus Seminar, which was a group of Bible scholars who got together and literally voted on which sayings they believed of Jesus were authentic and which ones weren't. So how do you go from, okay, these are generally reliable accounts from eyewitnesses that I'm investigating from 2,000 years ago to, I'm going to go ahead and believe everything that's here. A couple of things. Uh, number one, most of the Jesus um, stuff that's been thrown out is, was, was thrown out on the basis of a presupposition against supernaturalism. Uh, 
almost all of the this, the kind of but now what you see in today's world is not so much well I don't think the miracles could occur so therefore these have to be excised it's, it's I don't believe that this matches my modern sensibility about morality and so therefore I I cannot accept it and that's the bigger problem is that 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 so we have a world in which we're living today in which people think that that the moral teaching of the culture is far better than the moral teaching of Jesus. That's what I'm seeing anyway. I'm seeing a lot more people are willing to kind of cut out what they don't like about what Jesus says about marriage or gender identity or about sexuality or about sanctity of life or any number of things that have become political hot buttons. I'm pretty calm about that for the most part because this is the next book I just finished writing. Uh, and that I'm really pretty calm about it because I believe that the evidence is so strong uh, that if you were to measure under secular terms what contributes to human flourishing, it turns out you won't find that it's modern sensibilities about it turns out the classic traditional views that are taught by Christianity about marriage, about parenting, about family units, about mental health, about identity, those classic views the studies show us lead to the highest levels of human flourishing. And as we step away from what scripture teaches about those key important ingredients of, of living as a human, we, we only hurt ourselves. And so in the end, I, I'm pretty patient because eventually you can run that to the end. It's not going to lead someplace good. It's not as though, and why? why? Because most of these aspects of human nature are hardwired into our biochemistry by the designer. They aren't something that you discover uh, over time and we could evolve away from. It turns out these are important parts of our nature that you're just denying in order to hold a, a, a worldview. So, so in the end, uh, when people, so, well, why would you think that, that this is true from a perspective? Well, what, what gets thrown out? Most of what we're throwing out are things that violate cultural norms now. As we already talked about what, why we shouldn't throw out the, the miracle, the miraculous stuff. We've got good reason to believe the resurrection is true. We've got good reason to believe you cannot explain the universe around us with just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So the, so the supernatural stuff, I'm, I, I, I'm already over that. Now the question becomes, well, does the moral teaching, is it dated? Does it need to be changed? Is it antiquated? Well, modern studies still show us that human flourishing is dependent upon this teaching. Whether you teach it, in the end, I, I, I kind of like when they say, oh, defund the police. Really? I get that all the time as a cop. Defund the police. Defund the police. Okay, you can do that. I know it's not leading anywhere good. I know where that's going to lead. And so I'm pretty patient about those efforts because in the end, like in many big cities, they defunded the police only to refund them at higher levels after six months. Because in the end, this is if it's true, you're not going to be able to deny it because you just don't like it. And that's kind of what we see in Scripture too. If it's true, you're not going to be able to deny it just because you don't like it. So in the end, the question becomes, well, I've got actually good reason uh, to believe, evidentially, that the teaching, the moral teaching of Scripture is actually in our best interest. And so I think for my students, my kids, I want them to see also, yeah, that, that, that Scripture makes a claim about marriage and about this, the, the nature of men and women. And, and we know from studies that that's confirmed. You can try to wiggle around this. For example, you know, two biological parents who raise their biological children in a low-conflict setting still produces the best result in terms of every metric of measuring you have for students, for kids. Yeah. If, if, I, I wasn't raised that way. My parents divorced. I was raised by one woman with one child, me. It wasn't perfect. It was okay. It would have been a lot better. 
had it been both biological parents. I didn't raise my family that way. I've got two adopted daughters. It would have been far better for those girls to be raised by their biological parents who loved them in a low-conflict setting, but that wasn't available for them, so we did the next best thing. But under every metric, if you've got two biological parents raising their kids in a low-conflict setting, they will do better than kids who are raised otherwise. There's always an anomaly, but on, on average, that will always do better. Well, that's the teaching of Scripture. So in the end, you can try to resist that, but I think we've got good reason to believe it's actually true. That is such a good answer. When I when I gave those examples, I wasn't even thinking about how different they are in terms of the Jesus seminar presupposing that the supernatural is not going to happen. So there can be no miracles. So they're going to throw out that kind of stuff. But then progressive Christians, they're throwing out stuff because of their own presuppositions about morality. Right. Uh, so, so that's that, that's a really really interesting interesting point there. Um, I want to leave a few minutes here at the end for some listener questions. I always put it out on Facebook and to my audience say, hey, Good. what do you want me to ask Jim Wallace? And so let's take a few of those. Um, yeah. Here, The first one that came in was this. Have you ever heard an objection that has shaken you since coming to faith? And, and I'll add on that. Is there any particular question you've had that you just have to accept you can't resolve from the evidence when it comes to the reliability of Scripture? Um, well, first of all, I don't, I don't know. There's not a question I've come to that has shaken my, or even given me a pause. But that's not because, oh, I'm super Christian, or this is, no, it's because I didn't, I wasn't raised in the church. So it's not like I came to faith without examining the evidence. And then things occurred that shook me. I came right. to faith through the objections because I held all those objections and I needed to systematically answer them before I could ever even consider this seriously. So it's not like I discovered something new on the no, I was the holder of all of those objections before I became the Christian, and I came to Christianity through the objections. And maybe that's a, an advantage in some sense. I don't know. Not like I have all the answers. I don't. Look, in every criminal case, I tell the jury the same thing. Are you going to be able to, to render a verdict with, without every question you have answered? You're going to have open questions still at the end. Are you going to be able, because I have never been able, and I think they say, no, I got to have all my questions answered. We're going to excuse them. They're not getting on our jury because I have never had a case where I could answer everyone's unanswered questions. It's just not possible. I, I often have cases where I know that, that he did it, but I don't know how he did it because he hasn't confessed to it yet. <laughs> you know, I don't, I can, I, can, I think, I think I might know how from the evidence, but I, there's still like details. Did he bludgeon her? What did he bludgeon her with? I don't know. Something heavy, I guess. I mean, this is the whole point. I can't answer every question. Where did he get that thing from? How did he get it in the room without making a noise? I mean, I can't answer those questions. I tell people all the time, in every jury trial, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. And you're going to have to make a step across the end of this elaborate evidence trail, which only points to one suspect. It's not pointing to somebody over here or somebody over there. It's all pointing to him, but there's a gap at the end of the evidence trail. Those are called your unanswered questions. I'm going to ask you to take a step across the gap. That's called rendering a verdict. The same thing is true for me as a Christian. I had more than enough evidence pointing to this one reasonable inference that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was raised from the dead. But are there some unanswered questions there? Yes, of course. And we're going to step across the unanswered questions. We call that a step of faith, but it's not a blind step of faith. It's a, it's a, it's an evidentially directed step of, of making an inference. You're just rendering a verdict. Same is true for verdicts that you don't know. You could be wrong rendering the verdict, but you think you have enough evidence to render that verdict. I get it. It's the same process. So I had no. It does not. It had never shook me, uh, and I'm comfortable 
with a few unanswered questions if I have the weight of evidence we have in this cumulative case, and I think we have enough. I always try to remind my kids, too, that anyone who tells you they have no questions about their worldview, that everything makes complete sense, they can put every piece together, and there's nothing that bothers them, they're lying. They're just lying. I think that was actually how we ended our final session when we did um, your, your video series. We ended up in this conversation about that, that you are, whether you're an atheist or a Mormon or you're a, a Jew, a Christian, whatever, there are going to be questions that you can't answer. So it's not going to help you if you're worried about, hey, I don't have enough certainty to just go somewhere else to another worldview where you're also going to have more uncertainty if you're being honest. Well, I think about that. Yes, yes, as an atheist, I, you, have, you, you have no certainty about how the universe began, why it looks fine-tuned, why there's the appearance of design and biology, of how our life originated. You can't answer these questions. Why we, how we have free agency and, and consciousness, and are there objective? You can't answer these questions. Yet, well, I'm supposed to be comfortable with all of the, Those are the most important questions you can ask about the universe. Yet, I'm supposed to say, well, someday science might tell us. That's as good as I can get on that side. Right. So that's, it's not as though anyone holds a view in which we don't have a huge gap at the end of our evidence trail. I just think the gap is so much shorter under a Christian worldview. Right. Someone else asks, she says, it's not as Christians we don't believe the Bible to be true. I've really learned a lot from your books on how to defend its verifiability. But so many other quote-unquote Christian religions say they follow the Bible, but their interpretations are where the falsehoods are. I, I, she's probably thinking of maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. How do we know our interpretation of the Bible is true? Well, this, this is, this is, you know that the, the culprit is human nature, is that we, if you find yourself uh, interpreting something based not on the entire body of Scripture that it addresses this issue, and that's part of it, it's a hermeneutics issue, like most of us still read a Bible verse, and then we have to ask ourselves, am I inter how many times have you heard someone say, in a, in a Bible study, they'll read a passage and they'll say, what does this mean to you? <laughs> like, like this is so common in Bible studies. Who cares what it means to you? What was Paul trying to tell the first century? And then how does that apply to us today? That's a far better question. What is he telling the original reader? That's probably getting to the truth of what he meant. Not how do I interpret it? Because you're, you can't, the heart is deceitful and wicked. It's in scripture. It cannot be trusted. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And so how do you know? Well, don't ever make a decision on the basis of one verse. And if you find that there's only one verse describing it, you now know it's a non-essential. I mean, if it was important to God, he would hammer it, <laughs> okay? And there are many things that are important to God that he hammers. You just don't necessarily know where all the other places are because you're not look, reading the scripture that way. You're not reading it like an investigator who's digging. For like if I, if I have a transcript and the guy says, yeah, I was mad at her. Uh, well, I want to know, like, what, does he say that a lot? Is this the only place he's ever said that in the transcript? He describes her glowingly everywhere else. It'll change the way I interpret that one sentence. I need to know what everything he said about her, not just one thing he said about her. The same thing is true when you're reading scripture, is that I have to know enough about the breadth of scripture, and that's why sometimes software is helpful. If you've got Logos Bible software or something, any kind of Bible software that'll allow you to do a deep dive into every place that this issue is addressed, it'll at least give you a sense, is this an essential or not? And if it isn't essential, and I've got 12 things that say uh, version one, you know, view one, and two things that say view two, I'm probably making a reasonable inference to step off into view one. So a lot of it is about us. The same thing is true with evidence. I'm going to interpret every piece of evidence in light of the other pieces of evidence and how they, they push me. Because they're going to push you in certain directions. And then you have to, if you've got a, a, a fence setter, you know which direction to incline, to lean.
Well, I had way more listener questions than we can possibly go over, but I'll give you one final one before we close okay. here. Uh, this person said, I had been chatting with a Muslim friend, and I'm wondering if he's also done the same analysis with their texts and what he thinks, meaning yeah. you, he, yes. or applied it to other major world religions. So I, I only applied it to Mormonism because that was my my structure coming up, right? I was somebody who had Mormons in my family who wanted me to believe that was true, and I was starting to get like interested in the New Testament. So they saw I was getting interested, so I applied. And what I'm applying is those four aspects of eyewitness reliability. Was it written early enough to be written by an eyewitness? Two, has it changed over time? Is it corroborative? Can it be corroborated in some way? And does it have anybody any bias, any uh, motive that would cause the writer or the speaker to to to, to lie? and tell me something that's untrue. That's how you test eyewitnesses in court. So you could apply those four concepts to Mormonism and right away it, it folded. So I knew Mormonism wasn't true, but I wasn't convinced that Christianity was. And I read through the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price before I finished the, New, the Old Testament. So I knew that I, I was familiar with their scripture and I tested it, it doesn't work. Now in the class I teach at Biola, I, I asked the students to test with the same four principles test any other historically based theistic worldview. The problem, of course, is that not every theistic worldview is his, doesn't make claims about history. Hinduism does not rise or fall on a specific t uh, event in history. It, it rises and falls basically on whether you think that those statements, wisdom statements, are, are true. And I get it. You could test it some other way, but you can't test it the way you test a, a criminal event in history or an eyewitness to a criminal event in history. So I, I, you can't apply it to something like that. But yes, my students often will write, and I can think of a number of ways, reasons why Islam does not pass the test. It's the gap between the event and the actual recording of the event. It's the motives that Muhammad might have to, to say something that's not true. It comes to what's, you know, does he make enough claims about history that can be, uh, or even important? Remember, there's no, Muhammad never did anything like Jesus, so it's not like we could test the same types of miracle claims. So in many ways, uh, it, it fails if you apply those four criteria for reliable eyewitnesses. And yeah, I've got a bunch of these papers that have been written over the years in that class. I just keep them all. And it is interesting to see people who are, were former Muslims, for example, who are now taking the class as a Christian, to kind of go back and look at their worldview under that criteria, because that's not why they probably came out. Like it's, it's interesting, not everyone takes an evidential approach when making decisions about God. So to have them go back in hindsight and do it, I think has always been interesting. Well, for those who are interested in Mormonism in particular, I know you have summarized your case on that on your blog in a yep. few different ways. So you can go to the blog and I'll, I'll try to find that actually and put a link in the show notes okay, to that for those who are interested in that. There's a closing comment from the listener. I suggest you tell Jim Wallace, one, a big thank you for helping so many people. And number two, that his fans pray for the Lord's continued guidance, blessing and protection for him. So I wanted oh. to share that with you. And it's a, a great way to end here. Thank you so much for your time today um, for people to get the book. Obviously, you know, you can go to Amazon, but you can see everything that he does at coldcasechristianity.com. Make sure you get the updated version. It is well worth it. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Natasha. You know how much I appreciate it. It is humbling to have people pray for you. So thanks again to everyone who's done, doing that. I appreciate it. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. I want to remind you that our Unshaken Conference with Elisa Childers, Frank Turek, and myself is coming up next week in Tucson, Arizona. We'll be there on September 23rd. If you're anywhere in the area, be sure to get tickets for that at unshakenconference.com. We'll also be in Nashville on November 4th, and those tickets are also available now, unshakenconference.com. I also want to remind you guys that Elisa Childers and I are coming back with our 
our Unshaken Faith podcast. We've been on hiatus for the summer, but we are resuming the podcast on September 13th. So weekly episodes will be dropping every Wednesday where we tackle cultural topics from a biblical worldview perspective. So if you're already a listener, you can look forward to that. And if you're not, be sure to go check it out and subscribe so you see the new episodes as they're released. And finally, as always, if you're enjoying my podcast, I would love it if you could take just a minute to leave a few words as a review and a rating on your favorite podcast player. It helps more people find out about the show. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will talk with you soon.